I think what we're seeing is we're seeing the retail industry cleaving into two distinctly different camps. Brands that have achieved that status of cognitive default, and I applaud them for doing so. It's a, it's a real feat to do that. But also brands that occupy a very distinct and powerful emotional space in our lives. And if you, as a brand, are neither of those things, your time is, is limited. I'm Daphne Howland. And I'm Danny James, and we're reporters at Retail Dive. This is our podcast where we look into the biggest retail trend shaping the industry. We talk about what traditional retailers are up to, what's happening in the DTC space, and everything in between. Plus, we'll be talking to some industry experts along the way. This is The Backroom. Welcome back, everybody, to this special edition of The Backroom. I have with me today Doug Stevens, The Retail Profit. This is our annual check-in with Doug. Regular listeners will know that we like to check in with Doug at the end of every year to get his sense of what's been going on and what we can look forward to ahead as retail starts 2024. Doug, welcome to The Backroom. Very good to have you here as always. Thanks, Daphne. It's great to be with you. So I definitely want to hear where you think retail is headed. And let's start with sort of where it's been. You have talked about if a retailer is not fortunate enough to be Amazon or Walmart, that there are business models that can help them thrive. What do you actually mean by that? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that if I had to sort of summarize the current state of retail in general, I would say that I think in many, many ways, we are simply coming to the end of an era where so many of the systems and the constructs and the ways about thinking, uh, you know, around things like competitive advantage um, and and value for the consumer. A lot of these things are, are just fundamentally changing. Um, you know, I often say that retail isn't rocket science. It's way more complex than rocket science. And, and you know, I, I, I'm saying that um, in seriousness because I think the world is simply a much more complex place than it was. I mean, if we go back only, say, Oh gosh, even 20 years, you know, 20, 25 years, you know, retailers competed along relatively strict lines. It was about convenience and price and um, positioning and uh, merchandising. You know, these were sort of the, the platforms that we competed on. And being good at a variety of things, so offering a degree of service, offering a degree of in-store atmosphere and a decent product with relatively good pricing, that was actually good enough to float in, in that old era. But the problem today is that being good at a variety of things is simply no longer good enough. And the result of being in that state of you know goodness is that you basically go into this spiral where you're not attracting traffic. So you invest in tons more advertising only to discover that advertising today is more expensive and less effective than it has really ever been. 
And so when your advertising doesn't work, uh, you, you go into this death spiral of, of promotion and price and discounting. And when that doesn't work, you know, companies then begin to invest millions of dollars in, in consulting, uh, you know, only again, to, to come out on the other end, basically not really understanding how to change their situation. But the best way I can put it is this. I think that we are now in an era where purpose is the new positioning, but I don't mean before everyone rolls their eyes and, and, you know, hits the, hits the X in the corner of their screen. I do not mean purpose in the way that we often talk about it, you know, your vision and your values and, and, uh, all these, you know, lofty corporate statements. I'm not talking about your values as much as I am talking about your value your value to the consumer, bedrock value. And, and so if we take the example, you mentioned Amazon and Walmart, let's take the example of, of Amazon and Walmart. So from the beginning, Amazon's focus has always been convenience, you know, really at the exclusion of so much else, it has always been about having the most products with the highest level of convenience and the fastest delivery. If I look across the street at Walmart, it's always been since 1962, Sam Walton's focus was always on price. It was about providing affordable products for uh, you know, American families and now, of course, global families. They have never really seriously deviated from that focus on price. And it just so happens that those two purposes uh, on, on the part of Amazon and Walmart also address very, very clear and tangible needs. I go to Amazon because it saves me time. I go to Walmart because it saves me money. So a, a very clear focus, a very clear purpose that addresses a tangible need. And so as a consequence, both of these brands have really moved into the state of becoming what I call cognitive defaults in our lives. When I'm sitting at, you know, O'Hare Airport and it's 8 p.m. and I'm just about to get on a flight to get home, but I know I need something in a couple of days at home. I am just going to one destination and, and it's not my local shopping mall. It's Amazon because Amazon has become my cognitive default for saving time. If I, if I need a commodity item and I don't want to spend too much, I'll find myself shopping in a Walmart. So this works, this notion of singular focus. But again, to the question, okay, but I'm not Walmart. So I can't become that overnight. I'm not Amazon. I can't become that. And you may not be able to become the cognitive default in your category, but that doesn't mean you can't compete. What you can become is the emotional default in your category. So would you say that retailers who aren't Amazon and Walmart, which is all the other retailers, are making a mistake by trying to compete with Amazon and Walmart? Yeah, 100%. 100%. No, let me let me let me qualify that. And I think that we can agree that sure, there there are table stakes in retail just to play the game today, right? The consumer has baseline expectations around uh, getting a level of convenience. They have baseline expectations around product quality. So no, you can't make yourself wildly unavailable or, or inconvenient. And I'm still going to check the price of something. Yeah. Convenience price. It's, it's not like it doesn't matter. Right. These things matter. But the question is, are these areas where your brand can win? Not where, you know, you may have to play 
to a certain extent, but can you win? Are you going to beat Amazon on convenience? Are you going to beat Walmart on price? In fact, I would ask the question a different way. Do you really want to beat Amazon on price? Is that where you want to go? And so when I say, you know, let, let them be the cognitive default in the category, because I believe there's much richer territory by becoming an emotional default. And so how does one do that? How do you sort of look at the landscape from an emotional standpoint? And I believe there are four areas where retailers and brands can truly compete to become the emotional default. They are culture, so uh, appealing to the consumer's need for shared values, to do business with businesses that share their values, to give them a sense of belonging and community. The second area would be entertainment, where you are simply the most fun and entertaining option in your category, regardless of what you sell, appealing to the consumer's need for enjoyment, joy, distraction. The third area would be expertise, where sure, you can buy this product elsewhere, but if you come to us, we will educate you. We will inspire you, not just with product knowledge, but with true expertise. And then the final area is design, where a product or, or a service experience is just so meticulously designed that it really transcends the product itself and it really appeals to the consumer's need for beauty or for status. If you can really dig deep into one of those areas and dominate within that area, you will outperform. And I say that because in, in my last book, I actually looked at companies that do dominate in these areas. So for example, Patagonia in the area of culture, you know, Patagonia um, is just single-minded about their purpose being to support environmental causes, to be a force for good in the world. And as a consequence, people buy from Patagonia because there is that notion of shared values and culture and belonging to, to this, this cultural entity. And so as a consequence, uh, Patagonia outperforms. And they are just one of a number of businesses that I explored through the research that prove out the same thing. If you can become the emotional default, you can outperform on sales, profitability, uh, customer satisfaction, and earned media. You will, you will spend less on marketing proportionately because you will be earning more media as a brand. So I believe that's the future. I think what we're seeing is we're seeing the retail industry cleaving into two distinctly different camps. Brands that have achieved that status of cognitive default, and I applaud them for doing so. It's a, it's a real feat to do that, but also brands that occupy a very distinct and powerful emotional space in our lives. And if you, as a brand, are neither of those things, your time is is limited. So here's a question for you, because your mention of Patagonia made me think of REI, which similarly has a reputation for progressive values, and they're actually a co-op, so their customers are often, are probably mostly members of REI. So they've really bought in, and in the past couple of years, they've dealt with unionization at their stores, and I think 
they're sort of generating some cognitive dissonance around their brand and how they talk about their workers, how they talk about unions, and then even some of the specific actions they've taken against the the unions. Is, is this something that a place like REI should think twice about? Is, is it maybe more prudent to figure out a way to work more closely and or more in a more cooperative way with when unions start popping up? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think what you're alluding to here is, is the idea that, you know, you can't do this in half measures, right? If you decide that your purpose is going to be around uh, community, uh, a community of employees, that if, if it's going to be around the fair and egalitarian treatment of employees, that you are going to become a force for good as it applies to society and humanity, if that's your purpose, you can't be in for a penny without being in for a pound. That's really the message here. So whatever your focus is, you have to commit to that even if there are times where that loses you money, where that might cut into your profitability very slightly. You have to be prepared to to take that. You know, there have been times, I'm sure, where Walmart has seen opportunities on the horizon. In fact, I can point to one. Project Impact was a project that Walmart rolled out where it tried to become Target for a day just to see how it worked out, and it failed dismally. And they retreated very, very quickly uh, and, and in, you know, almost inextricably back to this notion of, no, we are about price. We're about price. We're about value. So it really is a matter of being 100% committed to your purpose. Now, on the other hand, if your purpose as a brand is to be the most entertaining brand available in the category, well, that's got to be your 100% focus then. All of your time, your resources, your energy, your finances and investments go into making that happen. So there are no half measures. So this also makes me think of we're hearing that especially younger consumers, but many consumers this year at the holiday, were focused on local retailers. And in my experience, that means probably spending more money. And it's not very convenient. You know, you you're you tend to have to go to the store as opposed to ordering things online and, and making that whole holiday seasonal purchasing journey easier. I think for a lot of people that is fun. But where do you see the local retailers being able to compete about behemoths like Amazon and Walmart? I think it's entirely possible, entirely possible. Um, and and I, I'm not just you know shooting from the from the hip on this. I mean, we we see it time and time again. We see iconic businesses. I'll give you an example uh, s- straight from the research. B&H Photo and Video is an institution in New York City. It was started in the 1970s uh, by Blimey and Herman Schreiber, who had a very, very simple uh, credo at the beginning. Um, and I, I'm, I'm quoting off the top of my head here, but it was basically, be honest, know the merchandise, be helpful, and don't push. Right? So know what you're talking about give people honest advice, 
and don't push them into a sale. And that was basically the training program. Well, today, B&H Photo and Video occupies almost an entire New York City block. It is an absolutely unbelievable operation. Everywhere I go in the world, and and ask people in in uh, in presentations, you know, have you heard of this brand? Almost inevitably, whether it's you know Saudi Arabia or New Zealand or or anywhere in America, someone in the audience has a relationship with B and H Photo and Video because they have had this singular focus on education, knowledge, and expertise. And it's not just BS; like it's not just you know something they put on their website. They actually have the bios of individual store salespeople, many of whom are semi-professionals in the industry themselves, and they promote those people and they promote this notion of expertise. Their stores aren't pretty. Their, their store in New York City is, is really, it looks almost like the floor of a stock exchange, but it's always packed. I, I know it well. It's one of my favorite places. Well, there you in the go. World. There you go. Yeah. I, you just yeah. helped me prove my point again, you know? Absolutely. So, so here's an example of a business that is selling largely commodity items, largely things that I can buy online and buy elsewhere and maybe even buy less expensively. But they, but, but we don't. We don't because people feel an inherent sense of trust and, and uh, they feel more empowered when they're getting the knowledge to buy the right thing and have a company stand behind that knowledge. So they are really the poster child for how you take on Amazon without necessarily having to take on Amazon. The other thing I think they have, and it goes to trust also, for photographers, the equipment and a lot of the accessories need to be authentic. It's not smart to buy an off-brand memory card or batteries, whereas you might be able to get those things more cheaply from a place like Amazon or, or another marketplace. They're not necessarily the authentic memory card brand that you're after. And I think a lot of photographers learned that the hard way. The other thing that B&H does is they have a lot of education and post a lot of that online. So you can take a class or a workshop and go to that store in New York and hear from a professional, but you can often tune into those because they'll post the video online. Exactly. Because they know that's their purpose. And, it, and it's never changed since the 1970s. Be honest, be helpful, know the merchandise and don't push. It's a formula for success. And they have committed to it. And I'm sure, I'm certain there have been times of doubt. I'm sure there are times where they say, maybe we should lower our prices. Maybe we should have more promotions because we all have those moments, right? In business where things aren't going your way necessarily, or things aren't as good as they were last year, but you have to have the intestinal fortitude to stay committed to what you know addresses the tangible need of the consumer. And yes, it's, it's knowledge. It's having the right products, the right knowledge and expertise to do your job as a photographer. But I, I went in to BNH one time just looking for a lens. All I needed was a telescopic lens, nothing complicated. I could have bought it on Amazon, but they said, look, you can buy this new, we're happy to sell it to you, but you don't need a new one. Why don't you buy a refurbished one and save a lot of money? So 
I left thinking, I love these guys, you know? It's true. Amazon wouldn't and have done that. they have a whole used department too. And those guys are yeah. great to talk to. And it's fun. Yeah. A lot of those guys behind the, the counters, whether it's the used counter, or the new counters are really fun to talk to. Absolutely. Yeah. So yes, the average, the average small to medium sized business can indeed stand up to the giants, but they have to do so by wielding a weapon that is so powerful and so committed to that the giants won't even try to fight them on that basis. Amazon is not going to become a B&H photo video anytime soon. Uh, so yeah, that that's the way you do it. This, this must also explain why local bookstores continue to do pretty well, even though the books on, I mean, Amazon started with books and the books there probably are 30% cheaper just from the jump. Um, and yet we just had a new bookstore open in our neighborhood about a year ago and, you know, wander around, look for those staff picks. There's a couch in the middle of the store. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, you know, there again, another example. Um, so why has Barnes and Noble struggled? In, in the US. Why has Chapters Indigo struggled in Canada? You know, these were booksellers that at one point were, you know, the the premier sellers of books. And then along comes Amazon and Amazon comes out 30% cheaper. And all of a sudden Barnes and Noble starts commoditizing its books, moving away from providing a beautiful environment in which to consume books, talk about books, be around other people who love books. And the same thing happened in Canada. Chapters Indigo, you know, started taking the chairs out of their stores so you could sit down and actually enjoy a book. Uh, they, they started, you know, divorcing themselves from the whole coffee experience that might go along with book shopping. And they basically commoditized the book category and started selling a whole bunch of other junk in an effort to try and broaden their assortment but they lost sight of their purpose. Their purpose isn't to be a commodity seller of books just like Amazon. It's to be a deeper, more meaningful seller of books than Amazon could ever be and command the premium you know, that consumers may be willing to pay because they feel such a deep sense of affiliation and association and community with the brand, right? So this is, on the face of it, this is, you know, remarkably simple, but if you can actually do it, and that's the difficult part, the impact can be simply remarkable. We've kind of touched on values and for a brand like Patagonia or REI, you can name the values and, and you can understand when those brands, you know, are fulfilling that side of their promise. There's another whole aspect of expectation of a lot of brands and retailers, which is sustainability. What is our role in the world at a time when climate change is a problem that needs solving pretty soon? The world actually just finished off as we record. There was just an announcement that one of the most remarkable international agreements on fossil fuels was somehow reached, not to everyone's satisfaction, but it seems like a pretty 
impressive milestone. What role do retailers and brands have in the sustainability conversation when it's been so rife with, it almost seems like it's owned by the marketing department and that leads to maybe some distrust or some cynicism around what brands are really doing to accomplish sustainability goals or aren't doing. Or aren't doing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, this is really a, a, an important piece. And, and I think that there's, um, there's something in it that I think is important to understand, and it's not easily visible on the surface. So you're, you're absolutely right. For at least the last couple of decades now, uh, we've been talking and talking and talking ad nauseum about the issue of climate change and and um, environmental damage, uh, and you know, really, um, kind of the wanted poster on the light post, uh, you know, for this crime against humanity has the picture of retail on it, right? That's that's the wanted poster, and and we're on it. Uh, as an industry. And we have been, and we know we have been. There are very few other industries in the world that use as much petroleum as the retail industry. And that has only you know, jettisoned um, to higher heights uh, post-1990 as more and more goods have been coming greater and greater distances to get to uh, Western consumers. So we're very much implicated in this. But you know, we and, and listen, I know that, it, you know, I could debate this with different audiences till the cows come home and, and some will disagree and some might agree, but it doesn't matter. The question is, who's going to fix it? And so let's look at government. What's government doing? And, and despite the odd, you know, the, the, the odd uh, bright spot, I would argue that government has been largely ineffectual. Nations are falling woefully short of their Paris climate goals. Uh, if I go back to COP24, that was also mostly ineffectual. Um, so the problem, I think, is that government in general has become less potent than it potentially ever has been in modern history. And a lot of that has to do with trust. A lot of it has to do with the decline in trust that, that people are feeling about governments. Just, just you know, as an example, 17% of Americans today actually believe that the government, the, the capital G government, has their best interests at heart. In the 1960s, that was close to 70% of citizens. Now, how do you affect meaningful social or, or, you know, change when you don't have the trust of, of even the minority of, of consumers? So um, government, I don't think, is going to solve this problem. Will corporations solve it? Are, you know, is everyone going to wake up tomorrow, uh, you know, all the CEOs of major corporations and just say, you know, wow, I, I've had a complete change of heart. It's not about profit. It's not about revenue. It's about saving the planet. Nope, not going to happen. Corporations are in business to make money. They're in business to deliver returns to shareholders. Is it going to be the consumer? Oh, yeah, the consumer. Everybody wants sustainable products. No, they don't. Because if they did, Shein wouldn't exist. And Timu wouldn't exist. And most of the retail, frankly, that, that we see on the landscape today 
would not exist if consumers were prioritizing sustainability above everything else. So there are three major constituents, government, corporations, and consumers. So who is going to fix it? The most unlikely constituent of all, the investor. A record 168 investors controlling over $17 trillion worth of assets just a year or two ago reached out to 1,300 major companies and asked them to disclose their environmental data to the Carbon Disclosure Project, which is a not-for-profit group that basically um, keeps track of the, the, the status and performance of companies along the lines of forests and water and social and governments. And the reason these investors did this is because they know that these issues represent risk. If a business is, is walking a fine line in terms of you know, their environmental performance, and they could turn up on the front page of the New York Times next week about some chemical spill or some contamination of, of the, the, the communities that they operate in, that's a significant risk to investor capital. If a business is found to be treating employees in Bangladesh poorly and, and uh, suffers a, a factory fire or a building collapse, that is a risk to investor capital. I know this sounds really antiseptic and inhuman, but, but the investment community is going to, is going to change this uh, situation. They are pressuring companies now to perform to deliver against these targets. So, hey, listen, if you don't want to do that as a corporation, that's cool, but you can basically count on your investment drying up. If you're a country that isn't buying into the whole climate crisis thing, you can basically kiss any sort of direct foreign investment in your country goodbye. So this is going to come down to the almighty dollar driving a change in behavior, and it's going to be investors and investing groups that do it. And this is something that you see growing. hundred percent. Absolutely. In fact, I would argue that, you know, you know, as consumers, we're, we're consuming, we're consuming more. We're not consuming less. And, you know, sure, the plastics industry, you know, did a good job of convincing us that if all we have to do is recycle and we'll save the world. Well, we know that's not the case either. Um, corporations are pumping out more and more product, more cheap product, um, you know, more unsustainable product. So yeah, who the white knight here is going to be investors that don't want to put their money at risk by investing in companies that don't perform either from a social or an environmental standpoint. So this, this brings to mind, it almost feels like if you, if you bring this a little closer to home, when you think about the U.S. retail worker or the North American retail worker in stores, especially, but also warehouses, the employee is no longer a stakeholder in the business. It seemed like maybe 40 or 50 years ago, you thought of your customers, the business slash investors and employees as stakeholders. But now it seems to be customers and investors or or the business. As we see more retail workers demanding a living wage, which by and large, at least in this country, is just not true for most retail, you know, store workers. Is there any kind of ethic out there that might change for the minimum wage 
store work. You know, I think this is part of a bigger part of a bigger discussion. And 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 I'll bring it up, I'll bring it up now because I think it's appropriate. And it's a it's a big idea, Daphne, that I've been spending an awful lot of time on. And it's actually kind of the guts of a forthcoming book, uh, which um, is, is called The Future of Retail and Everything Else. And what I mean by that is that, you know, the tension I think that so many of us feel today, and I think it, it's sort of this underlying, almost this, this vibration that we feel, this seismic sort of change that's happening, and it's unsettling. And, and I think what we're feeling is, is that many of the 20th century systems, the structures, the institutions, the ways of going to business that really helped to scale the retail industry that we see around us today, the juggernaut that, that it has become, many of those systems have reached a breaking point. And they are really not, they're no longer seaworthy. To, to carry us forward through the 21st century. And I'm talking about fundamental systems like capitalism, uh, de democratic government, public education, industrialism. I believe that all of these systems, many of which are at a minimum 100 years or more old, some dating back you know, 500, 600 years, many of these now are beginning to collapse under their own weight. And I think there is a growing acknowledgement, whether it's overt or not, that these systems need to be redesigned. But the question is, who's going to undertake the reinvention of these systems? And I think most retailers today are frankly just standing on the sidelines and they're watching these, these systems, these social uh, um, and societal systems just sort of collapsing and breaking down, and they're not taking at all a proactive role in in addressing them. And I think the reason is that they're they're focusing on the wrong. Uh, they're they're focusing on these problems the wrong way. They're looking at these situations, whether we're talking about sustainability or whether we're talking about people falling out of the middle class and into the working class or below, they're looking at these situations from the standpoint of responsibility and culpability, and they're trying to mitigate both as it applies to them. But, but it, becomes a, a, it becomes a problem primarily for retailers, and, and I'll explain what I mean. If we go back to what I consider to be, and I think most people would consider to be one of the greatest periods in time for the retail industry, we have to go back to about 1945. And between 1945 and 1980, what did we have? We had largely bipartisan support for, middle, for the middle class, for supporting and growing and enriching the middle class. We had education systems that were better funded, far better funded than they are today, that were actually producing people that could read and do arithmetic, that where trust in government was high. I mentioned in the 1960s, almost 70% of Americans believed faithfully that the government had their best interests at heart. Industrialism was sort of framed on the notion at that time that you know competitive advantage was through the ownership and control of, of assets, and there was no problem. I mean, resources seemed boundless. 
And all of these systems now, all the systems that grew, the Walmarts, the Targets, and, and all of the shopping malls that grew during that time, they are breaking down. Trust in government, as we said, is at an all-time low. Bipartisanship has been replaced by tribalism. Capitalism is leaving the vast percentage of consumers behind. You know, Sam Walton's middle class, that consumer is now a working class consumer. And let's be honest, Walmart had a hand in making that happen, right? The massive offshoring uh, of production that closed down U.S. factories, that, that, that really affected the livelihoods of the average American worker, um, you know, the, the chickens are coming home to roost now. Um, so it is no longer a middle class shopper by and large that's shopping in Walmart. It's a working class or lower class consumer. And that's bad for business if you're Walmart, because where do you go when you run out of cheap stuff out of China? You know, there aren't many places where you can go to get lower prices. So I guess the, the, the writing on the wall here is that somebody has to come along and fix it. And, and to my mind, it's retailers that have the greatest interest in fixing this. Because if the education system becomes completely defunct and people are coming in to apply for jobs and they can't write, they can't read, they can't do basic arithmetic, who suffers? The retailer suffers. So who's going to fix the education system? To my mind, it's going to be businesses. It's going to be businesses that do that. Walmart is already now forced to accept resumes from people that don't even have college educations. They're accepting high school graduates and training them, you know, to, to understand enough about the job to perform it. Where I see this going in the future is I actually see the need for companies to actually establish educational curriculum. To, to take people and not just train them in on-the-job training, but to actually give them a proper education. And in return for that proper education, they will, they will get outsized loyalty from employees, they will get higher performance from employees, and ultimately will profit by that in the end. We already see companies like Google and Amazon moving further and further into education and certificate programs. So you mentioned, and this is, I apologize for the long way around here, but let's come back to your question about how are we going to treat workers, you know, like, like human beings in this industry? I believe that it is going to become a zero sum equation for companies like Walmart. We either, these people represent our customers right? The average Walmart worker is also the average Walmart customer. And so if we just keep suppressing and driving these people down in terms of their capacity to earn a living, who are we hurting? Ourselves, right? Walmart's no longer a middle-class retailer. So I think a lot of these challenges, whether it's sustainability, the broken down education system, the ineffectual uh, nature of government, the, uh, the, the revision of capitalism so that it does actually benefit the, the majority, not the minority. Uh, these are issues that the retail industry can take on. And by doing so, this is the key. It will be the greatest competitive advantage of the 21st century. It's not going to be by producing a cheaper widget or having another sale or getting something 10 minutes faster to the door. It's going to be by reconstituting society to work better for retail.
I, I, th I can think of two retailers that might be getting close to what you're talking about. And I'm thinking specifically about worker wages, which is Ikea and Costco have both made a policy of paying their workers as close to a living wage as anyone in retail does, you know, and it also seems like they're among the most consistently performing retailers. Indeed. In, indeed. And, and there, you know, again, this is a conversation that we've had for years. Um, if we look at uh, Costco relative to Walmart, uh, and, I, and I would argue, too, this is not just a, this is not just a format difference uh, because, you know, I don't get a lot more service in a Walmart than I get in a Costco, to be honest with you. So it's not about numbers and, and, and um, the number of bodies. But Costco pays about, last time I checked, about 40% more on average than Walmart, and their productivity is vastly higher than Walmart's on a per-employee basis. Um, that's not voodoo, right? That's, that's called satisfying someone's basic human needs so they're not living in a car in the parking lot and coming to work that morning. You know, they, they, they're not terrified that they're not going to be able to pay their rent this month, and that's not consuming their time and attention at work. So these are these are very basic things, and more and more retailers, I think, who have been sidestepping these problems and trying to really mit mitigate their culpability, are going to recognize that this isn't just about liability; it's about opportunity. We have an opportunity here to actually do two things: change the world for the better, and in doing so, create a more fertile business environment for our brand. So I have to say, just hearing you talk, it reminds me of Gen Z. Gen Z talks about late stage capitalism and the limits of that pretty consistently. At least the Gen Zers in my household do. They seem to recognize this. And you mentioned the cynicism around government, which definitely is true. But also we've seen in the U.S. that a lot of younger voters, Gen Z voters, are voting so there must be at least some sliver of hope that they have that it's still an avenue, you know, worth pursuing. So do you think this is a generational thing too? I always, I, I always wonder about that. Um, and, 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 I, and here I'm the one now that is trying not to be cynical. Um, but typically, whenever we look at any social or environmental issues and we look at them across the spectrum of age, older consumers tend to be a little less um, concerned. Um, let's put it that way. In surveys, right? Let's, let's forget about be actual behavior on the ground. But when we survey across age spectrum, it's always younger consumers that seem more uh, concerned about social and environmental issues. To some extent, I wonder if that isn't simply a level of idealism that exists with youth. And again, I don't want everyone to, to, to get you know, angry at me for saying that, but, but I think it's natural that as, when we were younger, we do sort of tend to see the world in, in you know, black and white. That, that things are very clear. And as we age, as we become more entrenched in the business world, as the pressures of life and the economy weigh on us, those, those you know, idealistic notions sometimes tend to go by the wayside. But let's talk about behavior. Gen Z is also, uh, you know, again, largely uh, promoting 
the growth of companies like Shein. So if there was a true mm-hmm. commitment on the part of that generation, if it was black and white where they said, look, how can I buy from a company that's selling me a t-shirt for $4 and that's being shipped across the ocean? Who is making that and how on earth are they being paid a living wage? If that conversation was going on amongst Gen Z, Shein would not exist. So I'm not certain that there's a generational movement afoot. I'm not saying the needle hasn't moved slightly, but I'm not sure it's enough to, 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 you know, to correct this problem. I, I feel like as we finish up, I'd like to check in with you and, and look to the past a bit, the recent-ish past. Your last book was Resurrecting Retail, The Future of Business in a Post-Pandemic World. We're in the post-pandemic world, but I'm wondering how post-pandemic are we? Do you still see sort of a hangover from the pandemic? And if so, is this helping to propel some of the things you're talking about? Or do we need to actually sort of get out of the post-pandemic phase into a phase where we're not using the word pandemic anymore? Yeah, that's a good good point. Um I I think there's definitely a hangover, um, and and you know I think a few things apply um, in in the book. As I was writing the book, I was curious to know what an event like a pandemic, what sort of psychological impact does that have? What are the behaviors that exhibit themselves when consumers are confronted with? an existential crisis. And, and I think we can all agree that that's precisely what COVID-19 was. Um, what, you know, what sorts of changes take place? Well, I spoke to an expert on, uh, on this very topic, someone who's written several books on the subject uh, around things like 9-11 and the impact that that had on consumer behavior. Uh, Sheldon Solomon, who's a, a teacher at um, a professor at Skidmore College in upstate New York, and, and he really described a number of really intriguing uh, things to me. N- number one was uh, that in a, in an existential crisis like a pandemic, people become extremely protective. They be protective of their own resources. Uh, they become very very focused on money. They become very tribal, very otherist, you know, sort of uh, fearful of others, whatever they may be, whether that's sexual orientation, race, nationality, etc. And it's profound the, these these changes. Now, it's not always that way. We don't all move in that direction, but some people are susceptible to it. And I think we're seeing that division right now in society, and I think it's being exacerbated by social media, which is basically like the new PCBs that we're dumping into the river mm. in the in a digital form. Um, so yeah, we're, we're in a tough spot. Couple that with the fact that we walked out of a pandemic into what is now looking more and more like it could be a recession or, or some level of recessionary activity, which I also talk about in the book, because that followed the 1918 pandemic. Two years after the pandemic, there was a recession. Um, so coincidence perhaps, but yes, we need to get beyond this. We need to recognize, I think as an industry that we, we have a, not just a, a responsibility, but an opportunity because of our size, 
because of our influence on consumers and investors and, and uh, the, the way society works, we have an opportunity to tackle some of these problems and heal, uh, you know, heal uh, society as we know it. And, um, and, and then my hope is that more and more of them will embrace it as a business case, not just as a moral case, but as a, as a, a means of doing better business and, and frankly, being more successful. I feel like that's actually a really good place to leave it. This has been yet another great conversation with you, Doug. I really enjoy closing the year out with you this way and looking to the future. And I'm going to be definitely looking for signs of all these things that you're talking about as we, you know, enter the post post pandemic retail world. Post, post, post. Yeah, post, post, <laughs> post. Um, so thanks so much, Doug Stevens. Great to have you as always. We'll be visiting with you probably in a year, but I'll be in touch with you in the meantime for some of my reporting. Daphne, it's always a pleasure. Thank you very much. I love the work that you and your team uh, at, at uh, Dive do. And um, thank you for having me. This episode of The Backroom was produced and edited by Caroline Jansen. Please be sure to like, rate, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.